0: Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. We've got a great episode for you this week, coming to you live from the Cerebral Valley AI Summit. I spoke with Databricks CEO, Ali Goetze, and Mosaic founder, Naveen Rao. The duo met at the first Cerebral Valley, and eventually, Ali acquired Naveen's company for $1.3 billion, as we talk about on stage. This conversation took place November 15th, But I think it's still very relevant to you. Uh, So give it a listen. Before we get to that conversation, a word from our sponsors, Oracle and NVIDIA. Thousands of enterprises around the world rely on Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, OCI, to power applications that drive their businesses. OCI customers include leaders across industries such as healthcare, scientific research, financial services, telecommunications, and more. OCI also works with NVIDIA to provide an AI training as a service platform for customers to train complex AI models. Talk with Oracle about accelerating your GPU workloads at the link in the description. And now, here's my conversation with Databricks CEO, Ali Godzi, and Mosaic founder, Naveen Rao. Welcome. Thank you so much. You guys have been such big supporters of the conference. Thanks for coming back and getting on stage this time. Uh, Tell tell the story to start off with just of the acquisition, you know, I know we we bragged many times about how you met at Cerebral Valley, but how does that turn into an actual merger or acquisition?
1: We met during the Streeple Valley. But then you had this thing in the evening. What was that? There was like a, <laughs> a speaker dinner. dinner. Yeah, you were there. Yeah. Speaker dinner. And yeah, it was like 8-9pm. Right. And that's when we started like hanging out and talking about hey, how's it going? What are you doing? You, what you were thinking? telling
0: me war stories, but I don't think I'm allowed to... Yeah, please don't repeat those. <laughs> uh, keep them between
1: us. And yeah, so I started talking to Naveen about what he's doing. And I was like, ah, oh, he seems pretty legit. Like, you know, and the, the business is pretty good. and you know, So I started looking into more and more Mosaic ML and what they're doing. And you know, everything looked... You know, super awesome, and I remember, God, like, oh, these guys are pretty good. And then I walk out of my office uh, in SF, and I see one of our key employees, John Gray. He's sitting there on a the laptop, and I look at I look over his shoulder to see what he's doing. Hopefully, he's working, and you know, and he's on the Mosaic ML website. Hmm. I'm like, hey, what are you looking at? And he's like, hey, these guys just released like, I think you just released serving model serving of That's you right, know yeah. GPUs, and I was like, wow, what what's is there any good? He's like, yeah, this is very competitive pricing. This will be difficult, like, this is pretty good. And I was like, huh, so like, all the stars are aligning, and that day I called the guy who runs all of like, acquisitions and so on for Databricks, and I said, like, hey, like, this company I just saw yesterday, and they seemed pretty good. And he's like, Naveen, at Mosaic? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, if you want that company, you have to call him this weekend and buy it <laughs> this weekend.
0: I mean, yeah, when you get that call, like, what's what's your thought process? You, you build a, a startup for the long term. Like, yeah, what what were you thinking when you got the call? Well, you know, it's uh, using, using the
2: dating analogy, right? It's like uh, you kind of know he's going to pop the question, you know? <laughs> you know? He had to, like, you know, it's smirk coming. on his face as I called him. You could see him. He was, like, sitting there. I was like, he knows. And this had
0: happened to you before. Your last it startup, has, yeah. yeah.
2: And it always happens faster than people think. It's, like, one of these things, like, once everything aligns, it's, it's like, go. You made the decision, go, right? So I kinda knew what I was gonna think through a little bit, but it wasn't a, no, Ali, I don't wanna do this. It was like, no, 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 this actually makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about how that could work. And basically, I think in the first conversation, I even said, like, I think it's gonna come down to economics. Can we make this work?
1: I'll quote you exactly. You said, this makes sense, how much of the upside am I getting?
2: <laughs> it was the exact quote.
1: It was like, depends on how much of the upside I'm getting. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, you
0: know, you got to think about these things a little bit. I have investors to keep happy, right? But, and then you have some news today. I mean, it sort of starts the groundwork of the integration. Can you talk a little bit about how AI actually fits into Databricks' business?
1: So this is, we basically, after now, having spent six months together, figure out what is the strategy of the company? How do we combine the two companies? Okay, so they're awesome at generative AI. We have a data platform. How do the two come together? And it turns out that basically there's something you can do that's pretty unique, and I think this is what's gonna happen with all these data platforms. With data platforms, I mean Databricks, Snowflake, BigQuery, you name it, all these. In the future, I think what will happen is that you will basically leverage something like they had, which we call as data intelligence, where you can generate these generative AI models uh, for each of your customers, and they really understand deeply the semantics of the data of the enterprise or the organization. So each, co- each customer you have, the models that you create understands exactly the jargon, the priorities, everything. So what that enables is that basically today in a large organization that uses a data platform, you need to have people who know how to code or write Python or SQL. But with this, you can basically enable anyone who can speak English or any natural language to ask questions and you can get them the answers. So I think it changes everything. We call it data intelligence platform. So
0: so you can in plain language query uh, Databricks against your data, right? Is that available now or is that...
2: It is, and I mean it's, it's being improved continuously. So it's, it's early days, still, but I think the concept of making data interactive is really what brought this together and made it, made it happen. Because it's a, na- it's a very natural thing, like you wanna customize, personalize that interaction, and you wanna make it um, um, something where you can start driving business value across the company, which means you can't just have people who know how to write SQL queries.
0: And do you see actually providing foundation models as part of your business? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean,
2: foundation models um, I look at as a starting point for customization. I mean, sometimes it warrants building a whole new model from scratch, depending on what the, the types of data are. Like, if it's very particular kinds of jargon or very particular kinds of knowledge that have to be embedded. This which, is a which, by question. the way, this is
1: like that—that's your sport. That's what you guys did that's for right. a living at
2: Mosaic ML, building large language models from scratch that's right. on
1: custom data that enterprises had, right?
2: Exactly, yeah. And you know, we want to make it easy. So where we see patterns where different companies use things, we're going to build great starting points for that. There will always be cases where people need to do a higher level of customization.
0: Are you tr- trying to commoditize foundation models? Like how much do you think foundation models will be something where there's a lot of value to unlock or it's just sort of a starting point for, for other businesses? It's
2: a little bit of both. I mean, it depends on what your use case is, right? I mean, if you go and invest you know, lots of money like OpenAI or these other companies, um, they're, they're going after like a very different kind of market than we are. Uh, I think enterprises need a lot of customization. It's very different than consumer. And, and I, I think the, the, the cost to do so actually is commensurately high. and Maybe the volume uh, of inferences is also commensurately higher. But um, it's, it's a starting point, but it's ephemeral. Like every, they have a time to live. Six months, eight months, maybe a year. Your model's irrelevant, because there's gonna be better architecture, there's going be better data, better da- data cleaning techniques, this kind of a thing. Who,
0: who do you think are one two right now in quality?
2: I mean, GPT-4 is still the king, yeah. right? I mean, I don't think anyone's beat it, yet, beat it yet. But the thing is, in the enterprise, I mean, this is what he's saying, you know,
1: in the companies that you work, there are three-letter acronyms that no one understands what they stand for, right? If you ask ChatGPT, it won't know what that is. You have specific data that's super confidential in your organization. You know, ChatGPT doesn't know what that is. And by the way, when you ask questions from that AI, you want it to really be accurate. There's gonna be a need for organizations to custom train, at least, or fine tune, or
0: modify. Is that rag? I mean, I feel like everybody in the Valley is talking about retrieval, augmented generation. Is that, you think, the key, or you think it is fine tuning and having a sophisticated? Model.
2: It's a part of it. I mean, all of these are ways to customize the outcome, right? Um, sometimes you rag makes a lot of sense when you have permissions that change on particular data. When you have data that's updated continuously, that's a great use case for rag. We look at this on kind of a spectrum of techniques. It's not like there's one thing that's going to you know kill everything else. They're all they all have different power and uh, and capabilities. And keep in mind, for rag, you also have a large language model, and you're combining it with a vector
1: search database. So it turns out if you actually custom train the large language model to be really good at RAG, you actually get even better results. Uh, so we're doing that as well.
0: The accuracy issue, right? You sort of signaled that this is sort of just getting started. Yeah. So, you know, some people are very reluctant to roll something out without sort of certainty. I mean, you have like medical organizations in some cases using it. How do you think about how accurate the queries are even against customer data? And how did you think about whether to wait for perfect accuracy versus let people sort of try it and experiment?
2: Well, I think this is actually one of those clear, bright line differences between enterprise use cases and consumer, right? If you're doing something where accuracy doesn't matter or you're just you know it's a writing assistant or something like that, you, you can get away with a lot more stuff. Uh, whereas in enterprise, we can't. Uh, but at the same time, we need to get people used to the flow and thinking about it like this. I think having you know sort of techniques where you can, you can have some suggestions from the AI but alongside what humans do for now that's probably a good paradigm. As we get more and more accurate, you learn to trust the systems, and then that can be something that can start taking over. But right now, it's not really, I, I don't think you should turn loose one of these systems on mission critical outputs. You know?
1: And the way, so in the data intelligence platform what we've done uh, is that, yes, you can ask in English. It can find you, the data. yes, you can ask in English, and it like gives you the answer, but there's a box you can click on, and it gives you the query that it actually, so you can go under the hood, and you can have someone that, under, if you want to be dead, uh, sure that this is correct, that person can audit and look at, okay, let me look at the query under the hood in SQL. Yeah, this looks good. We can put it in the board deck. You know, this is our financial prediction for next year, and we're not gonna get fired.
0: At, at the first Cerebral Valley, like it was like open AI versus like the open source world, or it's like, can we sort of cobble together enough open source projects to to sort of fight against open AI? On the one hand, you know, you, I think with Facebook and Llama, we've seen sort of strong offerings. On the other hand, GPT-4 still seems sort of invincible in terms of like being the smartest uh, AI in the room. I'm curious, are you guys still all in on open source? I know it's key to your identity, you would release Dolly. Like what's the state of contributing to open source and how it fits into the strategy of Databricks?
1: 100%, I mean, you know, it's, uh, we think it's super important that researchers around the world do f- open research And that we have these open models that we can understand because we don't really understand these things. I mean, we understand how we built them. We don't understand why they exactly work, right? It's kind of like a little bit like the human. Isn't that brand.
0: terrifying to you as a CEO? It's like we it don't... is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: but how do we understand it then? Is it to have two companies that have two secret models that they don't want to share anything about, or do we want the researchers, all the all the sort of labs around the world, to spend time trying to understand what's going on and make progress towards understanding how these things work and how we can control them and how we can align them and all those kind of things? So we think open source is essential. And actually, unfortunately, I would say, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, if you agree or not, but uh, it seems there are talks now, there's, you know, in certain circles that maybe we should ban open source large language models altogether. There's discussions in many countries uh, where this is kind of coming up, which I think it's horrible, it's, it's, it's horrendous. It's gonna it kind of put a stop to all innovation and it'll just kill off the whole ecosystem and it won't help us understand uh, what these models do. Uh, so I think it's
2: absolutely essential that
1: we have an open ecosystem that continues to thrive.
2: I mean, it's ironic because by closing off models, you're actually going to ensure the thing that you were trying to pre- prevent, right? Because I think we all believe in the AI world that like these models are weird. They're, they can do potentially very damaging things. I don't know how that's going to manifest. I think the people who profess to know... are kind of full of shit, to be honest with you, uh, because we really don't know, and that's okay, but um, the, the way we're gonna figure this out is through many minds, many people, researchers in academia and different companies, building solutions, putting those into the world, seeing how they work, and then figuring out how to make them better. We have to increase access, not limit it. Keep in mind also, all the big innovations that we're leveraging today that made these possible was done in open research.
1: It was before the you know, shutdown of all of this stuff. It was pre-2020. Google
0: releasing the transformer paper, right, yeah. Public public research. Just to follow up on one thing you said, do you think a country will ban open source? Like, are you, do you see that in the cards, where some country is actually going to move and do that?
1: I don't know. I hope not. There's serious talks. If I had to say, from the information I have behind the scenes, it seems in some countries the the camp that's winning is the anti open source camp right now, because you know you have the biggest companies saying, hey. This is super dangerous, I'm creating it, and what I'm creating is super dangerous, so please re- regulate me. Right. And then you have the regulators, are like, okay, they're telling me to regulate them, and, you know, and uh, media is writing about how you know, dangerous this could be, so they're freaking out as well, the public's freaking out. So you know, it's kind of pointing in that direction. Uh, so right now I actually think that uh, it's going in the wrong way. I hope we can stop it, because just trusting two companies to figure this out, or four companies to figure this out, I don't think is the right way.
0: Yeah, you, you guys want to be team open source. You're a big company, sort of respected. How do you, how did that fit into your thinking on the Biden executive order? Did you guys stake out a position? What is the position? Did you think that was sort of a good middle ground, or how do you think about the executive order? This is
1: a, just the first sort of step, right? Where they're writing the executive order, it has some limits and so on. It didn't actually weigh in on whether open source is gonna be allowed or not. It kind of mentions it, making weights free. Uh, so. We hope that if this becomes law uh, or the continuation of this, absolutely is not going to sort of ban or put a stop to open source because that's going to be essential to figure it out. And also, by the way, there's worries about what about other countries? They could just pick up this open source stuff, be like basically giving away our IP to other countries. But what, what would you rather do? That all countries in the world are leveraging your technology stack, or that they're building their own? proprietary thing that they have, right? So, um, so we, hope, we hope that it's gonna continue to support open, open source, open research, uh, but
2: we don't really know. Yeah, I think for the executive order, there were some some good things. Um, I think NIST is a good natural home for some of this stuff, which I I thought was a good good thing. Focus that's on, the
0: organization that's going to
2: oversee it. That's right, under under the Commerce so, uh, yeah. um, branch, and I think that that made a lot of sense. I think focus on transparency, maybe some data tools around lineage, just kind of stuff. There are opportunities here in terms of market, uh, which is which is a good thing. The, the places where I think it it might be kind of not dangerous, but like. Uh, not super relevant, or when you start putting compute limits in. Because these things change constantly something that was really big a year ago is really not that big anymore. So I think it was 1E26 flops. I mean, okay, what precision? What You know, there's so many different things that how that can be interpreted. So I, I don't think it's a great idea to start dictating these kind of limits. Because we but just you did. don't understand. So are you, are you opposed it on that? Well, I, I'm not, I'm opposed to that part of it. I don't think it dictated it in a hard way. It was kind of soft. I, I guess for me, it's still an open question. How quickly can those limits be changed? Are they going to have to go through a whole government committee or something like that and take a year to change? Or is it something that's, that can be highly variable and then the limits are pretty high right now
1: for this year and next year yeah but yeah in five years you look back and it's you know it's silly probably
0: are you worried about existential risk or is that just a way to hype up the industry i mean dario at anthropic gave an interview where he said he thought there was like 20 percent chance something like really bad happens and he runs you know one of the top uh foundation model companies do you feel that way or how how much risk do you see this is what i'm saying it's like hey, I'm gonna build a huge model, and by the way, it's gonna take
1: over the world, you know, regulate me. what, this, so what do you think of that? And like, I think that 20% number is, but we're not exactly on the same page, I think, with existential risk. I love uh, disagreement, you know? let's go. No, it's, like, it's okay, right. argue
0: with your boss right I, I, now.
1: I, I, think, I think you're more, I mean, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, you're, you're more in the camp of like, you know, it's way less, and I'm a little bit like, ah, uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit more than, you know, but we're That's both right. actually on the side of, let me, let me kind of like, uh, argue sort of his side, I do think that we're protected right now because these things can't reproduce themselves. We're simply protected by the following thing. It costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time to train GPT-4. Okay? And the scaling laws say if you want to have an even better model, you better spend even more money and even more time right, just to get more intelligence. Okay? So therefore I'm protected. These things are not going to reproduce themselves. Now, if it was the case that you could, for one cent... Is it cost too much, yeah, if it, But if it cost one cent, and if it took one second to produce GPT-4, you can see. Then you would start making a loop, for loop, run a genetic algorithm, improve itself, and you could see how you could sort of get to this autonomous reproduction. But without reproduction, you know, I think we're, we're safe, actually. We should still do research and understand this stuff, but I don't think the existential risk is, like, immediate, or that we should stop all research or stop all... Uh, activity that's going
2: on—it's—it's it's sort of exaggerated, and I think that twenty twenty percent number is sort of just completely random. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think the twenty percent is way way overcalling it. What we all kind of agree on is that there is some eventuality where AIs will become as intelligent, if not more intelligent than humans. I don't, I don't think anyone will really argue with that. It's more the time scale. And I look at it like, okay, hang on. If you start putting these restrictions on now, you're actually gonna make it so that fewer people are working on this problem. That's a bad thing. That's what I'm worried about. I think at some point that will be relevant, especially when it becomes one cent to do a GPT-4 style model. Um, also, a lot, of time, a lot of the things I've seen have been rhetoric that's saying like, oh, I can see a model escaping and this and that. Really, you can look at that in, in terms of what is true today. Computer viruses are self-replicating. They can actually escape. They can do all of these things. Is this really a new problem, or are you just slapping AI on it and making people scared about it? That's a problem I have. So let's, let's look at the things that are real, real threats that we have today, and I think disinformation might be one of them. Let's focus on those, right? Let's focus on robotic safety. Like, I mean, there was, a, uh, I think, a factory worker that was killed by an automated robot just um, two, two weeks ago. So these are real threats in the, in the short term. What's gonna happen in 20 years? I don't know. Or, or, the, or the use cases, you know, for putting these AIs into weaponry.
1: So you know, maybe we should look at that. Maybe we should uh, regulate that. that, right? <laughs> maybe that we shouldn't go crazy with that.
0: Uh, all right, I want to try and thread a sort of nuanced question. I mean, on the one hand, being more of an AI company seems great for the Databricks story on a march towards going public someday. I feel like there's a huge appetite for like an AI company. On the other hand. It's really expensive to run. Like, how did you think about the trade-off in terms of actually deploying stuff when it's very costly, and how did that fit into your calculus of maybe moving towards an IPO? And can you give us any sort of update on where that stands?
1: Yeah, the IPO plans got smashed with the acquisition. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he, he
0: destroyed the
1: reporting right yeah. off. He that did, it he that. <laughs> that.
0: No, I uh, Destroying the P every did, day. Did exactly. it delay? There did a it a delay d- when you make a bubble? No,
1: it, it doesn't actually. We, we run. We're very careful about this stuff. You know, it's all part of the plans. Um, and, you know, the way I would think about it is we just have a much bigger budget to absorb these things. So, you know, the, the, it's different for a startup with five, 10 people that doesn't have any revenue yet to spend $100 million on GPUs. You know, our budget, annual budget, with or without these things, was in the billions anyway. Uh, so you can absorb these things. Plus, uh, these guys did a really good job of, I mean, their revenue was growing really fast. So they're also selling the GPUs. They're, they're you know, so we're do recouping you think, it. So you it think doesn't might go, go like public it. next year? That's a great question. We are watching the public markets. We looked at the recent IPOs that happened. Actually, you know, they haven't been smash hit. You know, it's kind of wobbly. So, you know, when the time is right and the markets are open, we will go. It's not something that we obsess over right now, to be honest. We're just, you know, there's so much demand for AI. We just want to satisfy that and continue innovating.
0: Do you have a Microsoft partnership right now?
1: We do. And what's the relationship? That's great. Thanks for asking. All right. Uh,
0: you got you know, I'm a diligent reporter at the end of the day. Okay, last give it just real quick because we're out of time, but give us a piece of advice for people here who wanna make like a deal like you guys did. What is what is the advice you give in terms of building the relationship or doing something like
1: that. Come to this event and go to the party
2: afterwards and grab drinks. Come, come to the party it's and sell your company jealous. for a billion dollars, right? That's what happens. And answer the phone calls on the weekends. <laughs> no, I, I think these, these events, it's, 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 it's serendipitous, right? There's no good way to really architect this stuff to happen, but I think relationships matter. I think uh, FaceTime, getting to, to meet people and know them actually really matters. And that's how we build trust. I mean, honestly, the reason this happened is that when I interacted with Ali and the other co-founders of, of Databricks and they interacted with us, I was like, we're not gonna agree on everything, and that's okay, but we're gonna figure the shit out. Whatever it is, we're gonna, I'm, I'm confident we can figure it out, and that's what matters. Yeah, can,
1: can I give some some inside scoop? I think like build an awesome company, right? You know, like when we looked at Mosaic, we were like, wow, they got really good people, you know, they're, they're sort of, we're the same DNA. So that was important, so hire phenomenal people, that matters. Second, they had an awesome business. You know, they, they were growing like crazy. You were like one million ARR in January, and there was 20 million ARR by the time the acquisition, May or June, we were talking about April, May timeframe. So you know, the business was growing. So it had actually a good business model foundation to it as well. Uh, so I think, you know, have a good business model and have great people. Then you know, people will be very, very interested.
0: Ali Naveen, thank you so much for all your support and thank coming you. on stage. All right, next panel. Thank you. Thank you. That's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Shout out to Max Child and James Wilsterman, my Cerebral Valley AI Summit co-hosts. Thank you to Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Gabby Caliendo at Volley, who's been instrumental on putting the conference together. Thanks to Young Chomsky for the theme music. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and please subscribe to the subsec, newcomer.co. Thank you so much.